we left off last week at the end of Exodus 32, and the children of Israel had just done a big no-no, as I would say to like one of my kids. Like, that was not good what you just did. <laughs> Do you know what you did that was wrong? They built a golden calf immediately after God said, don't create any false idol. Don't try to worship a created thing as though it's me. You know, and oftentimes I think we, um, when we look at that, we think when God says don't worship a graven image, we think of like creating a God, uh, you know, creating an image of a foreign God, which it, it does include that. But it also says that God doesn't want anything created by man to be a representation of who he is because he transcends all things. He created all things. So why would we create God in an image of, uh, of something that he created? You know, so it's just, it's even more than just the idea of worshiping another God. It's creating God in our image, essentially. We kind of talk about that a lot um, because that's, that's where I think a lot of us struggle and fall is where we start to make God in the image that we kind of perceive him to be which is the same thing as worshiping a foreign God, because we're, we're not allowing God to be who he is. We're trying to put him in a box of how we understand him to be. So um, we kind of, we'll move on here. And thankfully, uh, as we'll see, anytime the Israelites, uh, you know, make a boo-boo uh, in their walk with God, they, God will always reveal who he really is to them. Because he knows that they need it. He knows that any follower of him can very easily get led astray and to start to think some strange things. And he's always coming about. And as we've moved through the law, you know, I find it very interesting that every time the law is presented, you know, a new block of laws come out, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. What happens is they immediately break those very laws that God said, don't do that. And then he'll roll out some new laws. And then by the end, we get up to 613, and God has proven his point, which is no law can change the heart of man. And the purpose of the law was to point people to Christ. And God is very deliberate and intentional in everything that he does. And we always have to remember that when we read these things, because sometimes it can seem like there's chaos happening and things are just in upheaval. Um, as though God was like, you know, when we read things like God saying, go down to your people, Moses, because they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. God was not surprised by those things. That was the very people that he chose and loved in spite of those flaws and in spite of those things that he had foreknew that they would accomplish in their own depravity and sin. So as we move here, we start to see things uh, about God's purpose coming forth. And again, we saw how God said to Moses that he's just going to destroy Israel and start over with him. And we saw that that was a test to see Moses' heart as a shepherd to see if he could truly lead these stubborn, stiff-necked people into the promised land. And he's going to continue that theme with him as we move through Exodus 33, uh, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Which is interesting because as you look in the Old Testament, God is always saying, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now because they've sinned, He's, it's, it's kind of a parental thing where he's shifting the blame to Moses. It's like, yeah, your people that you brought out. I have nothing to do with these folks. They are doing things that do not honor me at all. Um, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. So we, right here we see in verse 1, God's grace. Because they had just sacrificed and worshipped and committed immorality in front of this golden calf, saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And God is saying... Go to the land that I promised you. Even after all that, 
You would think that God, after saying to Moses, I'm going to wipe them out, and Moses says, no, 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 don't do that. We think, okay, well, maybe he'll change his mind and we won't get that land. But God is true to his word. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants would go into this land. And nothing that they could do could prevent that from happening. Now, we'll see that the first generation, as they continue to rebel against God, he gets to a point where he says, your children are going to inherit the land. You're not going to get to see it. So everybody wanders for 40 years and dies until the next generation gets to enter in. So that was a result of their own individual sin. But God, uh, as a whole to the people of Israel, was true to his word, which was giving them the land. In verse 2, he says, And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. He says, I'm going to send my angel, but I'm not going to go with you. If you recall in Exodus 23, God promised that he would send his angel in whom was his name. And that would be the one that would go with him. Do we have that verse up there? Yeah. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him for he will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. So this is a different description of an angel than we see here. This is a very generic, my angel. In some tra- translations, um, well, in, if you have a New King James, my is in italics, because that's not actually in the original language. Uh, it's just, I will send an angel. It's not that possessive type of a thing. So the reaction that we'll see from the children of Israel, especially after God says, I will not go up with you in your midst, it seems as though he originally was promising the angel of the Lord, which most people believe was a pre-incarnate version of God the Son, Jesus Christ, that God's presence would go with them. And now he's saying, I will send an angel, which is uh, a messenger. So there's a difference there. It's not going to be God's presence in bodily form as he had promised before. It was going to be an angel, you know, Joe, the angel. You know, it wasn't Jesus or, you know, if you believe uh, that it was, you know, Jesus before he became who we know him to be, the son of Mary and Joseph. Um, That's a whole other theological discussion that we don't have time for tonight. Um, But that's why we see them react in this way. He says, I'm not going to go up with you because if I spend any more time with you, I'll probably just consume you because you're so wicked. I am so holy. And the thing that we have to understand about God's holiness is, uh, you know, I saw saw a video online and it's really awesome. And I encourage you guys to check it out. The Bible Project. Join thebibleproject.com. They do these animated videos that describe high theological themes in a simple way. And they talk about God's holiness and they describe it like the sun and how the sun is a source of life. Uh, It's powerful. It's beautiful. But the closer you get to it, it consumes you. Not because the sun is bad, but because it's so powerful and so good and it's the source of all life. So it's kind of cool. We describe God and when we see like God's going to consume us, it's not because he's just like, you're annoying and he flicks you like a gnat. It's I am so holy and my desire is to live in your presence, but sin cannot be in my presence. If you continue in sin, you will be consumed by my holiness. And in most cases, it will lead to your death because God cannot allow sin to dwell in his people and in his land. And thankfully, he had a plan in place to redeem his people. But we see in verse 4, when the people heard this, bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. Now, 
<clears throat> what's interesting is that when God says this about, I'm not going to go, the fact that he's allowing them to go into the land is a sign of his grace. But this is a test to see how they're going to respond. If they were satisfied with, cool, we get the land anyway. Well, God's not coming, but at least we get the promise, right? Then that would prove that they only loved God's blessings and not God himself. But they react, thankfully, in the right way to this news. It says, they mourned and that no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. I just want to talk about these ornaments for a second. These ornaments, uh, if you recall, when they were leaving Egypt in Exodus 12, it says that God told them to ask the Egyptians for whatever, anything. And the Egyptians gladly gave the Israelites, as they left, gold, silver, garments. And those items would then, that, that, it says that the, the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. And those items are going to be what God's going to use to construct the tabernacle and all the items and the, the things that uh, would glorify him in worship, which is what we just spent the last 10 weeks or so talking about, is the tabernacle and the items of worship. So if you recall from last week, they broke off their earrings and the gold and and the things that they had, and they threw them in the fire and made an idol out of them. And to show their mourning, they break off the ornaments and they, they take, God says, take those ornaments off. You shouldn't be properly adorned and dressed up. You should be mourning. We see this, this throughout the Bible where we see the, when people are grieved and when they're repentant, that they take off their regular clothes and put on sackcloth. And it's this sign of mourning and they sit in ashes. We see it over and over and over again. We see uh, Jacob when he finds out that Joseph has been eaten by the, the wild beast or whatever, that he takes off his garments and puts on sackcloth and he mourns. And it's the idea of who are you to adorn yourself and, and bring glory to yourself when you've wronged God? You need to remove that, glory, that man-made self-esteem glory that we conjure up for ourselves and show your repentance for the sins that you've committed. And I think it's really cool. There's a verse in Jeremiah, I don't have it up there, but it talks about um, how, you know, does a bride forget the ornaments that she wears when she gets married or the clothes, the adornment that she wears on her wedding day? But you've forgotten me. And we see over and over again this theme of God and his people, uh, being like a husband and a wife. And the wife, unfortunately, is usually an adulterous wife. If you could turn to Ezekiel 16, um, it's kind of in the middle. Instead of what people like to do about the God of the Old Testament, we we call him that as though he's a different God, which is wrong and inconsistent and uh, ignorant of those people that say that. Um, We make him this big, angry entity up in the heavens that can't wait to just find any flaw and just destroy all human beings for stumbling, you know? But the, paint, the picture that's painted in the Old Testament of God is of a scorned lover. And Ezekiel 16, I think, is such a beautiful and uh, tragic picture. I just, when I read, first heard somebody speak on this chapter, I never heard it before. I mean, I probably heard it just in listening through the Bible, but it's just so 
you see God's heart here for his children, the Israel, the people that he called and set free and, and called to live and be a light to the nations. We have to put ourselves in God's heavenly shoes, as it were. He's sovereign. Nothing catches him by surprise. But he also desires to have intimacy with his creation. So there's this idea that God is completely love. And we know that he loves us because he's wounded somehow, even though he knows things are going to happen that are contrary to his nature. He's wounded by our rebellious actions and our idolatry and our spiritual adultery. Isn't that incredible? That he, the whole, the whole, that the whole universe would be the span of his hand, that he would allow himself to be vulnerable. I don't know if, I'm not trying to sound blasphemous, but there's this this relationship that he desires to have with his creation that we could essentially wrong him even though he is nothing but right. I don't know. I find that really staggering. Um, so when people talk about God's wrath, everybody gets really uncomfortable. And I've heard someone describe God's wrath as God's love when it's been violated. And I feel, find that that's kind of a cool way to think of it because if you know as a parent, if someone that you love uh, is in danger and is, is someone is, is inflicting harm or leading them astray, that there is a, a righteous wrath that is stored up for you, you know, stored up in you that you need to unleash in order to protect the one that you love. And there, that's righteous. That is allowable. I mean, that, that is, you know, I kind of talk about this a lot because I, I stagger at the thought of it, but without wrath, there is no genuine love because there's just indifference and apathy. If something that you love is being harmed or is being led astray, and you don't have wrath, then how is your love truly demonstrated for that person? Unless you do everything you can to protect them. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, So Ezekiel 16, we'll just read briefly through this. He's talking about Israel as uh, basically someone left in the streets to die in their own blood which is kind of how he sees, how he rescued his people. Uh, He says in verse 3, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother was a Hittite. And this is kind of poetic language that he's talking about here. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. We can see evidence of this in our own society, the idea of a child being cast aside as though it were nothing. And God is saying that he saw Israel in its state after they had gone after their idolatry and been left to die in the street, essentially, as a result of their own actions. And he says, and when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to your blood, I'm sorry, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured and became very beautiful Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. This is beautiful, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. 
I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. Does this show love and care? What this man or, you know, what, what God is saying that he did for his children? I adorned you with ornaments. Put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. It doesn't stop there. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I bestowed on you, says the Lord God. So this is God what he does and what he longs to do in the life of his people. That's love. And he says, you are beautiful through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. Sadly, the story goes on and it says, but you trusted in your own beauty and played the harlot. Do you feel the wound? Now that we've seen what God has done for Israel, we see it in the language of a, of a man redeeming a woman that had been left out in the cold, providing for her over and over and over again, making her beautiful. And then for that woman, you know, in this story with Israel, to trust in their own beauty? What beauty? It says, you're beautiful through my splendor, which I bestowed on you. And then they go out and play the harlot. And for the next 40 verses... In Ezekiel chapter 16, actually, I'm sorry, 45 verses, it talks about how Israel continually, no matter how bad their sin got and the results and consequences for their sin, no matter how extreme they became, they continued to go after the idols and the adultery and the idolatry. And we're like, what? That's retarded. (laughs) You know, why would anybody do that? But it's the fallen nature of mankind. But verse 60 comes, and it's a long chapter of Ezekiel 16. I didn't mean to spend so much time here, but I just find it very powerful. Verse 60 says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your older and your younger sisters, for I will give them to you for daughters, but not because of my covenant with you. And I will establish my covenant with you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame. When I provide you an atonement for all you have done, says the Lord God. So even though Israel time and time again would betray God and go after idols, he always had grace for them. Even though we don't see it It may not have been one-on-one grace, like people paid the consequences for their sinful actions, but there was grace for Israel, the covenant that he had made. And I know that was, that's deep. And we went like kind of over here to explain something right here, but I think it's helpful to really feel the raw emotion of God, if I dare say that, because sometimes we make God this like being without feeling and he's just this autonomous you know, blob in the sky that just is indifferent to what's happening down here. And that's not true. That's how, and I shouldn't say we do that. I mean, the world, you know, mankind does that. They think of, they either think of God as 
having nothing to do with us or only angry all the time. But we see the, the woundedness here. So it's important that we see that because what, what happens back in, Ezek, uh, in Exodus, um, now we can understand why God reacts the way he does sometimes, I hope. Um, this is the people taking off and mourning that they had wronged their betrothed husband, as it were. In verse 7, Exodus 33, and we'll pick up the pace from now on. I just wanted to kind of, that helps set the tone a little bit there. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. Then all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So, something that we don't think of when we read uh, chapter by chapter is that we read about the tabernacle. So, in our minds, it's already there, but it wasn't yet. So, Moses takes his own tent and drags it outside of the camp because there was sin there. And yeah, they had made the the gesture of of taking off their ornaments and all those things, but Moses was going to go intercede for the people like he had been called to do. And we saw when God was going to destroy Israel and start with Moses, and Moses said, no, wipe me out and save them. That was a test for this event right here. Moses interceding again for his people. And what's really interesting is that God wanted to dwell among his people. It was his intention all along. If you recall, the beginning, God and man were happy together in the garden. And then sin destroyed that relationship. But the rest of the Bible has been about God trying to get back to intimacy with his people. Which is why he gave the instructions over the last 10 chapters or so about, let's create this tabernacle so that man, and you'll have these sacrifices and it'll make you clean ritually, spiritually, and then we can be together again the way it's always meant to be. Um, But now, because of their sin yet again, God has instructed Moses to move the tent, which was the tabernacle before the tabernacle was built, outside the camp. Thankfully, though, the people realize now what had happened, and they changed their posture toward God because he withdrew his presence from them. He said, I'm not going to go with you. And they said, "Uh uh-oh, what have we done? And the pillar of cloud that would come down in the center of the camp is now on the outside of the camp meeting with Moses. And it's very interesting because it says that they, they would watch. You know, it was almost like they, <laughs> you, you miss out on something and then you're kind of like looking like, oh, I wish I was over. You know, like you're like, for example, uh, at a picnic and you're really begrudgingly going because it's people you don't really like and you're there and you're at a park and there's a pavilion and they have, like, people are just sitting around. And there's another pavilion, and they have, like, ladder ball, and they have, like, tons of awesome stuff going on. And you're like, man, I kind of wish I was over there. Like, that's where everything's happening. You almost get that, like, what's it, FOMO, fear of missing out. That's what the Israelites are experiencing now. 
that remorse because they realized we had God right in our midst. And now Moses is out there outside the camp and we stand in our door and watch the cloud descend upon the tent of meeting. And we know that God is meeting with Moses and we can worship from our own tents, but we're missing out on something. Something that God wanted for us to experience personally is now God and Moses and then Moses comes back to us and it's our fault. And I love this. It says that Moses spoke to the Lord as a man speaks to his friend. Now, we know that it says uh, in the scriptures that no man has seen God at any time. And we're going to talk about it uh, briefly that Moses gets a chance to see a glimpse of God. But this idea of face-to-face is is kind of, um, I forget what they call it, but it's when they attribute physical attributes to God, even though he's spirit. There's a big word for it. I forget what it's called. But um, it's the idea of intimacy that Moses had with God. And we don't see anyone really in the Old Testament other than Adam and Eve Moses, you could say Ezekiel and Isaiah, they see the glory of God in a, in a glimpse. No one is described as having this intimacy with God other than Moses. And that's really incredible. Um, for us as believers, you know, it says that God basically is not going to send his presence. And that's why Moses is going to implore God to send his presence with us or with the children of Israel. For us as believers, God's not going to withdraw his his spirit from us. We're sealed. So we don't have to fear about that, that God's going to say, you know what, this isn't what I expected from you, so I'm just going to up and leave. Because he says, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You are sealed with the spirit as a guarantee that you are an adopted son or daughter. However, we see warnings in the new covenant that we should not quench the Holy Spirit. We should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Because God has taken up residence in our lives, and he's not going to go anywhere. All the more uh, comforting, yet also shameful that God promises not to leave. Because while it's comforting in that we're sealed and we're, our mortal bodies are going to be redeemed and we're going to receive immortality, it's shameful in that when we sin, we're defiling God's temple. And in a sense, we're robbing God of his glory by causing him to associate with things that he's died to protect us from. So while we are not in danger of losing out on the presence of God, as far as him being with us, when we continue in sin and when we worship at the altar of a foreign God, whether it's money or sex or whatever, we are in danger of losing our enjoyment of the presence of God, losing our confidence in being able to enter the presence of God. Moses says in verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God answers Moses' prayer. It seems like that was kind of easy. We don't know if this is everything that Moses said. We don't know how long Moses was there with God in the tabernacle, praying for God to send his presence with the people. But God essentially answers his prayer right there. And then he said, it was almost like that wasn't enough. Like he needed a sign that what God's promise was going to come to pass. He said, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. 
For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. I find this really interesting because Moses is clinging to God's promise. God said he would go with them. And Moses is, is feverishly just on his face before the Lord, praying that he would honor his promise. The presence of God with his people was the very thing that distinguished them from all other peoples on the earth. If you remember when we talked about the covenant with Abraham is that he said, I'm going to take you and your descendants, and through your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to keep this group of people and essentially isolate them by giving them laws on how to live so that they don't partake in the worship of demons, as we talked about on Sunday morning, when they were worshiping these false gods, they were worshiping demons and they were allowing the enemy to gain a foothold. That was why these laws were put in place, so that they wouldn't be partaking of foods that were sacrificed to idols, so that they weren't opening a portal, so that they were protected, they were consecrated, set apart, so that the other nations would look at them and say, I want to be like them because the God that they have delivers them from all these horrible things. And allows them to live a clean life and blesses them and they're fruitful. So he's saying, if you don't go with us, we might as well not go at all because the whole point that we exist is to reflect your glory to the nations. And that can, the same can be said for Christians. <clears throat> it's only when God's people allow God's presence to lead them into God's promise that the glory of God can be revealed to the rest of the world. I'll say it again. It's only when God's people allow God's presence to lead them into God's promise that the glory of the Lord can be revealed to the rest of the world. That's the entire intention of God selecting and electing people to have his image and to to be saved is to reflect his glory. But once we start to look at the promises of God and try to take hold of them without, God, without ever enjoying God's presence, then we are essentially saying, I like the stuff that you give me, God, but I don't like you. And that's a dangerous place to be in. And I, I am challenged so much because I have to think about the fact that do I enjoy God's blessings without enjoying his presence? If I have a relationship with God and that was all that I had, would it be enough for me? to worship him continually. Is God enough or do I just need the stuff? Is a simple way to say it. You know, and Moses is like, no. Like, God, I'd rather be here with you in the wilderness than in the promised land without you. And he says in verse 17, he's on a roll now. God's giving him what he wants, so he's like, all right, I'm going to go for the gusto. (laughs) He says, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Then he said, please show me your glory. Where did that come from? Moses is going for, he's like, I'm going for broke here. Like God's, he's listening to me. God is. He's speaking to me as a man speaks to his friend. So I might as well just say it. Please show me your glory. King James says, shoo me, I pray, thy glory. It's kind of cool. I like that. <laughs> but please, he's begging. 
Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. It's interesting because he says, I know you by name, and then he says, I'm going to make my name known to you, which is pretty cool. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. First time I ever heard that taught, I was like, wait. Like I had been a Christian for a while and somehow I missed this chapter and I heard somebody, and I was like, what? This is crazy. I mean, we can get into all this stuff about like, what, what's God's back look like? That's not the point here. The point is, is that Moses got to see it. God put him in the rock to protect him because he said, if, if I'm in your midst, I'm going to consume you. Because if you know what God is really like and your sin is there, it's not going to, they can't gel. It's not, it's, it's not going to work. But I'm going to hide you in the rock. And you know the song, Rock of Ages Cleft for Me, Let Me Hide Myself in Thee. There's a verse, and it's not necessarily talking about this rock. It's talking about the rock that Moses struck. But I find it interesting that it says that the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. And I think there's a cool type there that maybe the rock, this same rock or a rock that Moses hid in was Christ. Because in Christ, we can see the face of God. It's very interesting. Really quickly, I just want to go through a couple points of how Moses gets from I don't even deserve to be the guy leading your people into the promised land to, hey, yeah, show me your glory, please. How does he get there? This boldness comes from nowhere. He was the guy that was saying, I can't speak. I can't do this. I can't do that. We would be wrong to just walk up to God and say, you know, give me what I want. But we see from the beginning here, from chapter 32, actually, there's a process that gets us to this point. First, we see repentance. We see the children of Israel repenting for the wrong actions that they had done. Then we see consecration. Moses is taking the tent outside. He's separating himself from the sin in the camp. Then there's communion that takes place between him and God. The intimacy there. Then there's a commitment to God's promise. Moses says, no, you said you were going to do this, and I want your glory to be seen throughout all the world, and I'm committed to that. So whatever I need to do, To make that happen, I'm going to do it. Whether you say to go, I'm not going to go unless you're with me. Then Moses comes boldly to God to request that the glory of God be revealed. So we have repentance, consecration, communion, commitment. And that's the same in the life of a believer. We have repentance. We consecrate our life to the Lord. We share in communion with him. Not just the the cracker and the juice. I'm talking about an ongoing relationship and fellowship with God. And then we commit ourselves to his calling on our life and to the promise and the hope that we have. And then we can enter boldly and say, God, reveal your glory in me. And by, in, by revealing it to me, it's going to be revealed to the world. Moses had seen God's glory at different times up to this point, but he, that wasn't enough for him at this point. He said, no, I need more. John Piper says in the book, Hunger for God, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. I find that challenging. 
Let's just read through as God shows himself to Moses and we'll close. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no one shall come up with you and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning. God said, be ready in the morning and come up in the morning. So Moses got up early in the morning. And we'll talk about that. And went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, which is Jehovah, Jehovah, or Yahweh, Yahweh. God, merciful and gracious. The first thing that God attributes to himself is mercy. But I thought the God of the Old Testament was vengeful, right? That's what everybody believes. He says, no, I'm merciful and gracious and long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, in Exodus 25, 20 verse 5, he says this exact same thing, and he says, of them that hate me. So he's saying, if, you, if your generations continue to follow in the footsteps of their ancestors, then they will be judged. He's not saying that your dad sinned, so you get judged for that. That's not how it works. Because we'll see that the people, right, they sin and they have to wander in the wilderness and all have to die off and then their children get to enter into the promised land. That's how God, so God visits the judgment on the people who commit the sin. And in Ezekiel, he says, I don't want to hear about, you know, our fathers ate grapes and now our teeth are set on, you know, that whole thing. It doesn't work that way. But what's cool is that, <clears throat> It's very important that we see, it says, by no means clearing the guilty, meaning God didn't just erase sin and say like, oh, well, do over, which I think is, it kind of discredits exactly what happened on the cross because it says the wages of sin is death. Someone has to pay for the sin. So we never want to say that God just took our sins away and threw them away and they, don't, they cease to exist. Like, no, Jesus absorbed the full brunt he absorbed every single sin into himself so that God could judge it with his wrath. And that's a very important part of the gospel. Because if God could just wipe away sin without a sacrifice, then Jesus didn't have to die. It's very important that he's not saying like, I just say, okay, whatever. You didn't mean it. He doesn't clear the guilty. Like someone pays for the guilt of sin. It's, it's an it's a unfortunate truth. But thankfully... He provided the substitute to, to receive the guilt of sin, which is Jesus Christ. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. You bet he did. Then he said, if now I find grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us. Even though we are stiff-necked, and pe- stiff-necked people, he's acknowledging their, their sinful nature there. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Um, I just want to read this uh, quote, well, paragraph by Spurgeon as we close. What I find really interesting is that Moses sees the back of God's glory. 
and we say, you know, no one sees God at any time. But Jesus comes and reveals God to us. Moses actually got to see Jesus' face. Did you know that? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. The transfiguration on the mount. Moses is there with Jesus as he transfigures and shines forth the glory, the image of God. So you bet Moses was probably like, wow, this is even better than that cleft of the rock over there. You know, I think it's really cool. Uh, Let me read this to you and we'll close. This is about the idea of getting up and seeking God first, like Moses did, seeing the face of God in the morning. The call of Christ's servants comes from above. Jesus stands on that mountain, evermore above the world in holiness, earnestness, love, and power. Those whom he calls must go up the mountain to him. They must seek to rise to his level by living in constant communion with him. They may not be able to mount to classic honors or attain scholastic eminence, but they must, like Moses, go up into the mount of God and have familiar intercourse with the unseen God, or they will never be permitted to proclaim the gospel of peace. Jesus went apart to hold high fellowship with the Father, and we must enter into the same divine companionship if we would bless our fellow men. No wonder that the apostles were clothed with power when they came down fresh from the mountain where Jesus was. This morning, we must endeavor to ascend the Mount of Communion, that there we we may be ordained to the life work for which we are set apart. Let us not see the face of man today till we have seen Jesus. Time spent with him is laid out as blessed interest. We too shall cast out devils and work wonders if we go down into the world girded with that divine energy which Christ alone can give. It is of no use going to the Lord's battle till we are armed with heavenly weapons. We must see Jesus. This is essential. At the mercy seat we will linger till he shall manifest himself unto us as he doth not unto the world. And until we can truthfully say we were with him in the holy mount. That's just an encouragement to all of us to remember to seek the Lord. It's so tempting, man. I wake up and I go downstairs and my phone is there and I go skim, skim, skim. And I see someone posting about the NRA and someone posting about uh, the economic inequality. And and then my heart starts to get like, oh my God, I start to get so angry and I start to get all, you know, clouded and like, oh, and then my whole worldview has changed because I decided that it was more important to check Facebook than to seek the Lord. And I know now that that's just like, no, it can't be, especially after studying this. I'm like, no way. Uh, One last thing I'll read. I was just really into quotes this time around. I apologize. When the glory of God is the treasure of our lives, we will not lay up treasures on earth, but spend them for the spread of his glory. We will not covet, but overall, but overflow with liberality. We will not crave the praise of men, but forget ourselves in praising God. We will not be mastered by sinful, sensuous pleasures, but sever their root by the power of a superior promise. We will not nurse a wounded ego or cherish a grudge or nurture a vengeful spirit, but will hand over our cause to God and bless those who hate us. Every sin flows from the failure to treasure the glory of God above all things. So let's pray that God would give us a taste, uh, that he would reveal his glory to us in our lives as we go forth. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I appreciate the patience of everybody here as I um, went long. But um, I pray, Lord, that you would supernaturally give us the strength to wake up, that we would have blanket victory (laughs) as uh, I'm 
wise man once said, so that we would seek you first and see, receive blessings from heaven, receive downloads of revelation from heaven that we can then take to the world and our job, at our school, in our families. As we'll see next week, Lord, we want our face to be shining like the face of Moses because we have been in the presence of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.